The movement, the activism behind the climate and environmental justice movement is still very Western, very European-centered, very white male-dominated. And it's important to keep calling this out. Within the climate movement, we love to talk about solidarity. And we talk about solidarity with the Global South all the time. But at the same time, we don't take care of the most marginalized and impacted even within our community. So if we're not practicing what we're preaching then what are we doing? There can be a really weird and troubling disconnect between what more policy-oriented people might be proposing and what communities on the ground are saying. When communities are very clear about what they want, and so how do we continue to support those voices? Welcome to Our Voices, Our Choices, the gender politics podcast from the Heinrich Böll Foundation. I'm your host, Esme Nicholson. In this series, we'll be exploring how technology is being used to reshape feminism and advance its diverse causes, from fighting gender inequalities compounded by racism, to women's and trans rights activism, and to climate justice. We'll hear how digital tools provide campaigners with a voice they are otherwise denied, and how they're disrupting disproportionately male decision-making processes around the world. In this episode, we talk to environmental activists from Colombia, Pakistan and Zimbabwe about why the climate crisis is a feminist issue and why the climate justice movement must embrace intersectionality in order to effect more equitable change. Like feminism, climate change has long been treated as a fringe issue, but thanks to the social media campaigns of the youth-led Fridays for Future global strike movement, the media has started to amplify the voices of young activists calling out the lack of political will to keep fossil fuels in the ground, as Greta Thunberg puts it. But the voices of those on the ground aren't being heard. Campaigners from the Global South are working to bring the extensive knowledge of those most impacted to the negotiating table, the majority of whom are women and indigenous communities. My first guest, Maria Alexandra Escalante from Colombia, says these voices are not only being silenced by the corporations destroying their lands, but they're also being forgotten or dismissed by large parts of the climate justice movement. We're tired of a rhetoric around climate justice that is northern, that doesn't represent and doesn't see the reality of the lands and territories and experiences that we have in our region. We have been reclaiming the terms around climate justice and making sure that it resonates with our experiences. We're reclaiming how indigenous people, black people in the region, youth, see what climate justice means, not as a foreign idea that has been told by science or by academia, but actually how it is lived. Escalante is the co-founder of Tierra Activa Colombia, an environmental collective that calls for systemic rather than climate change in a country where many livelihoods are dependent on the land and where increasingly droughts and floods are displacing communities, exposing them to exploitation and violence. The most impacted in Colombia, in the region, are the most vulnerable communities. Those are the communities that have been living in economic poverty, in unstable housing projects, that have to work as agricultural day labor with underpaid wages. These are rural families. 
This is internally forced displaced people. And these communities are indigenous, black, rural people, and in particular women and youth. And when you couple these effects with the fact that deforestation is increasing in not only in Colombia, but in the whole Amazonian region, when extractive projects like mining, fracking are being approved and are being taken to the territories of where these vulnerable communities live off, and in particular the case of Colombia, when you add the layer of an armed conflict, then you have a situation of half of the population being extremely vulnerable and less able to cope with these systemic oppressions and this systemic structural violence. Taking an eco-feminist stance, Escalante sees a correlation between the commodification of territories and bodies and advocates for the well-being of both, fighting against the neo-colonial and capitalist assumptions that natural resources should be used to serve economic interests and that bodies are disposable tools for profit. Nature and people and bodies have been seen as commodities for states, for colonial settlers, for corporations, and this has effectively allowed polluting industries like the agribusiness sector or the fossil fuel sector to profit from plundering land and bodies. Escalante believes that real climate justice requires an intersectional approach because sexism, racism and neocolonialism are part of the same system that is causing the climate crisis. She believes it's up to her generation to push this because it has the most to lose. Youth must be at every conversation of what transformation means, because we, at the end of the day, are going to be enduring the hardest decades of the climate breakdown. Ultimately, the climate justice movement must be feminist, must be decolonial, must be anti-racist. It must break down the binary thoughts that have been imposed by Western rationality on us in terms of how there is a superiority of humans over nature, how we see nature as a commodity, and how patriarchy has made us see that men can deem women, youth and other gender minorities as less worth. Escalante says the fight to draw attention to the climate injustices in Colombia has gone almost exclusively online during the coronavirus pandemic, which means that campaigning via social media is more important than ever. But she warns that mainstream social media platforms are often ill-suited to an intersectional approach because they've been designed by predominantly white cis men, which, although not a problem in itself, this lack of diversity behind many of the platforms is reflected in their poor records on tackling harassment and trolling of eco-feminist activists, women and people of colour online. I think we have to be quite careful on how we use these platforms. I think they have many limits, especially because, yeah, they are mediated by corporate interests. Escalante says that in order to use social media effectively, activists must call out the big platforms if they don't address online behaviour that gaslights already marginalised voices. She says that in order to empower each other, users must promote care among their wider social media networks. Our next guest, Mira Ghani, an eco-feminist campaigner from Pakistan, agrees that promoting care is key to fighting climate change, especially when using social media, where a culture of care is often seriously lacking. If we look at platforms like Twitter and 
Facebook. They are the antithesis of what a culture of care would look like because often people hide behind anonymity to attack people and then there's also this whole mob mentality that comes into play where if somebody says something against someone you hold dear then there's a whole constant interaction where you're trying to cut other people down to size and make your point and it's not about cultivating understanding so if you're not even trying to understand each other and you're just talking at each other then it's very difficult to care really about what the other person's saying let alone care about them so of course it's difficult to have within those platforms a discourse that is nuanced because the platforms run on polarization that's their algorithm like escalante gani doesn't deny that facebook and twitter are useful for activism but she says that other social media platforms are providing spaces more suited to effective public discourse this is why i've moved more over to instagram where i feel like there can be a sense of community where people do exchange in a way where there is an eagerness to learn to understand to be in community to find a sense of belonging with each other i feel like especially during this pandemic it's created a space where because it's mostly been online interaction people have really come out to create spaces of care and mutual aid the issue of care is important to gani because of a lack of it she's seen within the climate justice movement where she says she has experienced both sexism and racism somehow this assumption that just because we're working for a cause we're in progressive spaces we do nothing wrong and this kind of you know being on a moral high horse it felt like a misalignment between what we said our values were and what how we were actually in relationship with each other and what our practices were Gani who has worked for a number of environmental NGOs and was a member of Pakistan's UN climate delegation for 5 years says climate justice is only possible if those fighting for it actually care about everyone it affects which means addressing more than just the one big urgent issue for me climate justice is not separate from racial justice disability justice queer justice all forms of social justice all systems of oppression are interconnected and none of us to quote uh, ordinary lord um live single issue lives so there's no such thing as single issue struggles the whole climate breakdown is a manifestation of existing systems of oppression they have the same root cause which is extractive racial capitalism white supremacy patriarchy ableism cis heteronormativity colonialism and if you keep separating climate change from these intersecting systems of oppression the solutions you'll get are going to be focused on technological fixes or throwing money at things mitigation focus they're not really going to get to the heart of justice gani says that the movement could benefit from a little self criticism if we're not embodying some of these values around you know what an intersectional analysis is who is the most marginalized how do we center their voices how do we make sure that decision making includes them how do we make sure that they're not they don't only have a seat at the as a at the table to be tokenized which is what happens within the un negotiations but are within decision making bodies and decisions are being made in a participatory way 
and that the power dynamics are being addressed. Ghani, whose native Pakistan is particularly vulnerable to climate breakdown, whether because of the increasingly unpredictable nature of the monsoon or the impact glacial melt in the mountains is having on water resources, says the climate justice movement is not really listening to those seeing it with their own eyes. Indigenous peoples have been in the right relationship with nature for centuries. And in a lot of these spaces, that way of being is not being recognised. Ghani has moved on from negotiating at the UN and now focuses on more localised initiatives that divest from institutions and corporations that damage the earth and reinvest in those that prioritise the well-being of communities and environments over profit. I just felt a huge lack of understanding and a huge apathy in these grand spaces where people were running around doing their jobs and thinking that they're making change happen. But if you look at the negotiations for the past however 20 years, there hasn't been much movement. Because of geopolitics, everything gets watered down to it then not meaning anything. Working with the collective Communities for Future, Ghani brings together grassroots projects such as eco-villages and local energy initiatives all over the world to share knowledge and inspire others. They connect via a wiki, a website that allows all users to edit and add information. Ghani says that despite her frustrations with tackling climate change on an international policy level, hope does exist, especially at a level where we can all take part. While I understand that something that is transnational and transversal as climate requires international agreements and national policies, for me, I think community building is where we need to start. To Zimbabwe now, where feminist climate activist Maggie Mapondera also works on community building, particularly for those under threat. Together with the organisation Women African Alliance, Mapondera strives to protect people whose lives and livelihoods are being disrupted and destroyed by the large-scale extraction of coal, oil and minerals that is taking place across the continent. In the African context, it's women who are responsible for bringing water into the homestead and caring for the homestead and performing all sorts of invisible labour to support their families and communities. Women are also responsible for a lot of small-scale farming. And so when you have droughts, when you have water scarcity, when you have unpredictable weather patterns that we're seeing more and more across the continent, it's, again, women who are hit hardest. Mapondera's expertise lies in communications. She believes that sharing stories online from women on the front lines of climate change both empowers the communities it connects and provides a fuller picture for those advocating on their behalf, many of whom, Mapondera says, have been overlooking their most important sources of information. The women on the front lines hold incredible analysis um, in their own words um, about what they're facing. Not many people, at least in the NGO sector, were really talking about it from a women's perspective. Our work really is to support women in communities to come together and to really reflect 
on what they've been experiencing and to, to share their analysis. Mapundera says extractive industries such as oil companies in the Niger Delta or coal mines in South Africa and Zimbabwe are not only destroying the land, but that the resulting pollution is causing respiratory illnesses such as tuberculosis, an added burden for the women who typically tend to sick family. But, she says, connecting women across the continent lightens this load, if only briefly. Very early on, it was incredibly powerful when women from Nigeria, for example, had an exchange with women in South Africa. And while they were facing slightly different forms of extractivism, Nigeria was primarily oil, in South Africa it was coal, they could really build a solidarity and a connection over sort of the shared struggle. And you can really begin to understand that this is a systemic crisis. And it's not just my community, it's many, many communities across the continent. And so then how can we build voice, build solidarity to begin pushing back and to understand the system as it is in its widest, biggest sense, so that we can begin chipping away and also thinking about alternatives that make sense. For many of the communities Mapondera works with, internet access is not a given, but she says the coronavirus pandemic has forced the advocacy work they do offline, online. This is not without its challenges. Data is incredibly expensive in almost all of the countries that we work with. In fact, it's, it's almost like data is another form of extractivism at this point. And so some of the stuff that we've been doing just to support people is to offer financial help to like just purchase data so that women can communicate and and say, you know, our community has not had water for this many weeks. Right now, Mapondera and the Women African Alliance are working on a social media campaign to lay bare the tyranny frontline communities experience when they stand up to mining companies. Using the hashtag Rise Against Repression, they are highlighting the risks these communities take to defend their lands and honouring those who've lost their lives to the cause on a virtual tribute wall. The backlash that can be experienced for saying no is incredibly harsh. I'm in Zimbabwe and what happens to the communities that are saying no is incredible amounts of violence, whether it's by security companies that have been hired by the mining companies themselves who are working collusion with the army and so government sanctioned forces. How is it possible to to say no and to protect yourself in such a context when you know that actually what happens is you will be killed or you will be violently assaulted for just disagreeing in some way. Mapondera says that it's bad enough that mining corporations, big agriculture and the governments in their pockets silence these communities, but warns against activists in the global north doing the same, albeit unwittingly. When companies, particularly in the global north, will say, yes, we're divesting locally in our own countries, but then we'll go and start investing really aggressively in countries in the global south. What does this divestment movement actually mean for very vulnerable communities in Africa or Latin America or South South Asia? Because, yeah, it might be divestment in the global north, but then (laughs) the global south continues to pay a heavy price for natural resource exploitation. Our voices, our choices. 
As the campaigners in this podcast highlight, an intersectional feminist approach to climate activism promotes diversity within the climate justice movement, not only for the sake of the most marginalised, but for the sake of all, and ultimately for the environment. If the movement and the media covering it ignore the voices of those most impacted... The data available to climate activists is incomplete. Without this data and knowledge, the movement isn't global and consequently isn't effective. The extent to which this then impacts the media became all too clear in Davos last year when the Associated Press cropped the Ugandan youth climate activist Vanessa Nakate out of a photograph with Greta Thunberg, Luisa Neubauer and other white European youth activists. Nakate took to Twitter to ask AP why they had cropped the picture. This tweet, which got thousands of likes, prompted a discussion on social media and then in the media about racism. As we've heard in this episode, there is no justice in a climate justice movement if the global south is ignored or simply tokenized. Luckily, and as our guests demonstrate, there is hope in a young generation of campaigners already embracing the climate crisis at the intersections of race, gender and class – enabling them to question global power structures. You've been listening to Our Voices, Our Choices, the gender politics podcast from the Heinrich Bow Foundation. You can subscribe to this series on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud, or you can find us at boell.de forward slash podcasts. If you want to get in touch, email us at podcast at boell.de. I'm Esme Nicholson. Thanks for listening. And till next time. (laughs) 